Bill Monroe was a musician. More specifically, he was a composer of bluegrass music. In fact, he even fashioned a specific kind of music that uh, he presented in a variety of venues throughout his lifetime. Bill Monroe composed this specific style of music because he grew up in southern Kentucky at the end of World War I. Uh, what he would do as a small boy is he would sneak away from his home, mend his way through the woods, uh, and then he would come close to the train station. Every so often, a passenger train would pull off and people would get off, and many of the people who would exit that train were soldiers coming back from World War I. Many of them had bandages wrapped around their heads or their arms. Some were using crutches to get from one place to the other. And then there were those who had patches over their eyes, and Monroe was fascinated with them as man after man would walk away from the train station, follow the tracks uh, to wherever it was that they were going. As he watched them, he noticed that some of those men would stop and they would look around and then they would cry out. It was not a cry so much as if uh, they were expressing joy because they had arrived home. They weren't necessarily calling a favorite pet or a family member. No, it was a cry of agony. It was a cry in which they wondered with all of their bruises, all of their wounds, what they were going to do next. It was a cry wondering if anybody really cared. The music that Monroe composed out of those experiences came to be known as High Lonesome, a musical form in which it expressed the agony that many people face. I don't know if Dennis can sing, but if he did, my guess is he would sing High Lonesome. I met Dennis's daughter several months ago at a day of prayer at the Moody Bible Institute, and she came to me and she talked to me about her dad. And in the process, she told me that her dad, several months earlier, had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. She told me how her dad was a hard worker. He earned for his family. He provided for his family. And, and now he was at home had, having difficulty going to work every day. And many of those days alone were days of despair. If Dennis could sing, I think he would sing High Lonesome. Then there's Daniel. Daniel grew up in uh, South Korea, grew up in a pastor's home. Almost uh, every Sunday, he would hear his father preaching about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And in the process, Daniel sensed that God was calling him, calling him to mission. If Jesus gave so much for him, Daniel felt that he had to at least give his life for the Lord Jesus. On graduation from a Bible college, he uh, went to South Vietnam, uh, went into the countryside, into a village, and in that village, uh, he started to learn the language, and then he started to share with people, and it wasn't very long until a small church was organized. Uh, Daniel uh, said that he was glad that God had called him to that ministry, but the sad thing about it was he had no other missionaries to work with him. Uh, Daniel's a single man. He often wondered why God had not provided him yet with a mate. And there were times when Daniel would go to bed at night and he would cry out to God, do you hear me? Do you know that I'm here? Uh, God, do you really care? If Daniel could sing, he would sing High Lonesome. 
I have no idea what you are experiencing in your life, especially during this time of a national pandemic. But it could be that there are times in which you wonder what in the world is going on. And you wonder if anybody cares. More specifically, maybe you are asking the question, does God care? That's the question we want to try to answer this morning. And in order to answer that question, this may surprise you in telling you this, that we need to go back to Egypt. Specifically, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 2. I say that for a couple of different reasons, because one of the things we'll discover is that God is speaking through this passage, Exodus 2, and he's speaking to us. I say it as well because uh, prior to Passion Week, we started a sermon series. In fact, there have been a couple of parts to that sermon series. You may remember that started out and we referred to the first part of the series as Into Egypt, in which we traced how the people of Israel ultimately ended up in Egypt and how they ended up in bondage. And then just before Easter, uh, one of the things that we did is we looked at Exodus chapter 1 as the beginning of looking at how the people of Israel ultimately come out of Egypt. How does that happen? A variety of different answers to that, but it ultimately comes about because of God, God's work, God's work in the lives of the people of Israel and God's work in our lives as well. As we go back to Egypt and as we go to Exodus chapter 2, I'd I'd like to do um, two or three things this morning. I want to take this question that I just asked you, uh, does God care? Uh, Who is God in the midst of our pain and our agony? That's the first thing that I I want to try to do. We're going to take that question and we're going to lean it up uh, against this passage. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at this passage, what the author is doing I happen to believe that Moses is the author of the book of Exodus, and specifically Exodus chapter 2. So we'll look at the passage, and then on the other side of looking at the passage, we're going to discover a principle. And then we're going to take that principle, and we're going to see how God might want us to practice this principle in our lives. So that's where we're we're headed. Uh, We'll take this question, where is God in all of this? Does God really care about us in the midst of our pain? And then we'll look at the passage, discover a principle, and see how God might want us to practice it. So as we come to this passage this morning, I I want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice the way the passage is structured. Would you notice that this passage is a continuation? It might not mean much to you, but in verse 1, we encounter the word now. That's um, in almost all of the English translations. It says, now a man from the house of Levi. That word now is basically saying in its Hebrew context, this is a continuation. So what we see happening is that chapter 2, quite obviously, is a continuation of Exodus chapter 1. And what we discovered in Exodus chapter 1 is that the people of Israel, they came down to Egypt, the family of Jacob, and the family begins to grow. But in the process, there's a change of leadership and a new Pharaoh comes on the scene and that Pharaoh begins to oppress the people of Israel. They're in bondage. It seems like there's no way out. They're experiencing hopelessness and they are in deep despair. Does anyone care? Does God care in the midst of that? And so chapter 2 is a continuation of that. I also want you to notice that the structure of Exodus chapter 2 is one in which it seems to be focusing on one man. 
And we look at that one man until we get to the end of uh, this chapter in uh, verse 23. And by the time we get to verse 23, we see what I'm going to call an editorial comment. In other words, the author is saying something specific so that we can understand everything that has gone before. So that's the structure of the passage. But as we look at this passage, I want you to notice that there are four scenes. And I've taken the liberty to give every one of these scenes a title. So would you look at these four scenes with me? Would you look at the first one? It begins in uh, verse 1 and goes through uh, verse uh, 2. And I want you to notice that this is a passage about what has happened as the continuation takes place. I'm calling it Moses is born, a simple title, because that's what we're told in these first two verses. And so Moses, it, it describes the birth of this man who's going to become the leader of the nation. But would you notice a couple of things? And would you notice that the fingerprint of God seems to be on this first scene? Certainly it's on the entire chapter, but I, I see it specifically uh, on these first two verses. And here's why I say this. Would you notice that we are told that a Levite marries a Levite woman? I find that interesting in the sense that the parents are never named. If you were to look at a birth announcement today, you would say that uh, uh, John and Joan Smith gave birth to a son and the son's name. Uh, but we don't find this in the passage. No mention uh, of the parents. We'll discover something uh, about them later on. But we're just told that a Levite man, a Levite woman, they come together. Uh, apparently they, they were married and, and they give birth. The reason why that is interesting and the fingerprint of God uh, is on this because we are told that this man and woman, they are Levites. And we know later on that from the Levites will come the priesthood of the people of Israel. Even though God says that all of the nation of Israel will be a kingdom of priests, uh, we do know that specifically there is one family that will have the primary responsibility of communing with God. Uh, with respect to um, all of the nation, interceding from them uh, day after day. So we see the fingerprint of God in which he's saying uh, already there's going to be a communication that will take place between me and you. That's not the only thing where we see God's fingerprint. Would you notice that in verse 2 we read these words? The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was, here's the word, she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Most of the time we just read over that expression. It might seem like a typical thing that a parent would say of a child. He was a fine child. You might have a translation that says something like this, that he was a beautiful child. And again, we would say that every parent would say, well, well, my child, my daughter's a fine young lady, or my son is a fine young man. Or we might say, oh, she is a beautiful child, or he's a handsome child. But why does Moses go to the length and the extent of describing this, that the child was a fine child? Apparently, he wants us to understand something. And if you were to dig deeper, you would discover that that word translated fine or beautiful uh, is using a Hebrew word that is also used in Genesis chapter 1. Now, the reason I call your attention to that, because in Genesis chapter 1, we are told that God created a variety of things. And at the end of several of those descriptions of what God created, we are told that God looked and God saw that it was good. 
Now, when we see that word, it's not so much that God is saying, uh, okay, I, I did a good job in this. I, I have a rather uh, good creative hand. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, I, I created this, and it's good, meaning by that, that this has a special purpose. Uh, my hand is upon this. I see it as good because it has a special purpose. And so that's what's being hinted at here, that here is this child. He's not only probably good-looking, he's beautiful, but God's hand is upon this child. He has a good purpose already given to him from God. So that's why I say we see the fingerprint of God all over this. So what I want you to see in scene number one is that Moses is born, and God's hand is upon this. Not only that, with respect to Moses being born, I want you to see something else that's taking place. In verses 3 and 4, we see that a predicament begins to unfold. And here's what I mean by that. Listen to what the writer says. When she, that is Moses' mother, could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And then his sister, that is Moses' sister, stands nearby to watch. Now, I say that there was a predicament in this situation because of the fact that the mother realizes that all of the male children, under an edict from Pharaoh, they are going to be destroyed. And so she tries to protect him. She senses that maybe God is going to do something through him. What is also interesting in this passage is what she does. Most of our translations say that she took a, a basket. What's interesting that that word could also be translated, she took an ark. Very same word that we find in Genesis chapter 6. You may remember that Noah built an ark. And that ark was built so that Noah and his family could come inside. Once God started to pour down the rain and a flood would begin to come, everyone inside that ark would be protected. Here again we see the handprint of God. Uh, on this boy's life. That is, God is protecting him. God is keeping him. So in the midst of this predicament, uh, the mother uh, makes sure that she's taking care of him, and God, above and beyond everyone else, is protecting this child as well. So Moses is born. Uh, he's born to these parents. Uh, in the midst of this, uh, Moses and his mother specifically is facing a predicament in terms of how she's going to care for him. But I want you to notice something else in this first scene, and it's a long one. Here again, we see the handprint of God all over this. It's what I'm calling a great reversal. A reversal begins to take place. So know what notice what happens beginning in verse 5. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young uh, women walked beside the river. She saw the basket, that is the ark, among the reeds and sent her servant women and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. Now we might say at that point, well, that's pretty obvious. A baby would probably cry as the day got hotter and here's this baby in, in this ark, in this basket and all of a sudden he begins to cry. And so he draws the attention of uh, at least the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, and she asks her maids to, to fetch this basket, and that's exactly what happens. So she looks at it, and she has compassion on this, and what's interesting, she notices that this is a Hebrew child. 
What's also interesting is that she does not say, listen, let's get rid of this. Uh, My father has said that uh, every male from the Hebrew tribe, they need to be destroyed. She doesn't do that. She has compassion and she takes this child in. What is even more significant is that Moses' sister comes along and she makes a proposition to Pharaoh's daughter. She said, would, would you like someone, maybe one of the Hebrew women, to come along and to, uh, to nurse this child? And uh, Pharaoh's daughter thinks that this is a good idea. Now drop down to verse 10. This is amazing. I think it's a very moving verse for this reason. When the child grew older, probably somewhere around about three or four years of age, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. That is, the mother brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So Moses is given a name at the end of this first scene, this birth scene. But what I find interesting is that here's the mother of Moses. She has been nursing this child. The child is weaned. She's probably been walking with him every day. She's been telling him different things. She's been expressing her love for him. And now she brings Moses And in a great reversal, she turns her son over to another woman. There must have been agony and pain in Moses' mother's life. And if she could sing, she would sing High Lonesome. Why in the world would would God allow this sort of thing? You say, well, it's his good hand upon her. Yes, that's true. But why would he allow this woman to go through such agony as she turns her child over to the care of another individual. That's scene one, the birth of Moses. And then we come to a scene two. Begins in verse 11, goes through verse 12. And this scene I'm simply titling uh, Moses the Murderer. So, so Moses is born and now we pick up uh, years later in his life. And, and so uh, he is referred to, at least by me, as Moses the Murderer. Now you might uh, say, I, I don't like that title. Moses was a good man. Moses was a hero. But before he came, became a hero, uh, Moses takes the life of another individual. And it was premeditated. Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I want you to notice the verbs that are used here. He went out, he looked on, he saw, and then in verse 12, he struck him down. It was premeditated, almost as if Moses is thinking, this is what I'm going to do. Now, my question is, why in the world would Moses do something like this? Years have passed. He hasn't been with his people for a long period of time. And now, all of a sudden, after being trained in the palace of Pharaoh, he begins to work against uh, the Pharaoh himself, in in killing one of his own men. Why would he do that? Would you notice that twice in this passage, there is a reference to the people of Israel as his people. He looked on his people. We see it in verse 11. We see it uh, at the end of verse 11. Uh, And he went out to his people. Twice that's mentioned. Uh, Allow me to speculate just a little bit. You won't see this in the text, but but I think we can uh, say justifiable terms, what may have happened. So Moses is growing up in the palace of Pharaoh. Like all of the other children that were there, 
He probably went to school every single day. He's trained in the sciences. He's trained in the arts. He's trained in the literature. And so he knows all sorts of things. But I wouldn't be surprised that sometimes in the midst of his study, Moses, along with the other children, may have had a break, what we might call recess today. And can you imagine Moses playing with some of the other children? And as children will do, they might get upset at others. They might get upset at Moses. They might have said to him, uh, you know, you're really not one of us. You're one of those stinking Hebrew children. You don't even look at, like us. Your, your skin is not like us. You're really not one of us. And there's probably a number of times in which Moses ran home to his mother. And she would hold him in her arms. And she would try to comfort him. She would remind him of his story. How she drew him out of the water. How she had made him her own. And she probably told him that she loved him deeply. But Moses probably never forgot the story of his life. And so he looks out and he sees his people and he has great pity on them and he decides he will do something about it. Scene two is about Moses, just like scene one. Scene one, Moses is born. Scene two, Moses becomes a murderer. That leads us to scene three. Uh, scene three is what I'm calling Moses the fugitive, because Moses is now a man on the run. We're told in verse 13 that uh, the next day Moses goes out and he sees some of his own Hebrew people, two men. They are arguing with one another. They're fighting with one another. And Moses tries to intercept and to change the situation. In fact, he rebukes them. But notice what happens in verse 14. The man uh, who is being rebuffed says, Who made you a prince? And a judge over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. All of a sudden, Moses realizes he's been found out. What's he going to do? And the only thing he can think of doing is running, fleeing. In fact, if you drop down to the end of verse 15, we discover that uh, someone else is against Moses now, not just his own people. When Pharaoh heard of it, verse 15, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down at a well. Moses is a man on the run. He's a fugitive. When he ends up in Midian, he comes to one of the places of social engagement, a well. While he's there, uh, he could probably encounter other people. But remember, Moses has been running. He, he still has his Egyptian clothing on. He, he's probably exhausted at this point. He may even be drawing some water. We are told at this point that um, the daughters of the priest of Midian, they come to water their sheep, water their animals. But upon coming, uh, other shepherds are coming in, and they chase the women away. But Moses comes to their defense. In the process of defending them, we are told that uh, the women, they come back. They come back early. And the father, the priest of Midian, uh, his name is Raul. And uh, Raul begins to ask what, what has happened here. But pick up the narrative in verse 16. Notice what happens. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. 
uh, drop down and notice that the father is saying to these daughters, because they come back early, earlier, and uh, in fact, their sheep have already been watered. And so in verse 19, uh, he says to them, uh, why are you back so soon? And they respond, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Notice that the daughters do not say a Hebrew came. They say an Egyptian came. And so the father begins to ask the question, well, why didn't you bring him back? He's rescued you. He's protected you. Why didn't you bring him for dinner? And so in verse 21, we're told this. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he, that is Ruel, gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here's Moses on the run. After um, coming to Midian, he meets this family. He's given a wife, and they together give birth to a son. But it's telling in the name of this son. Because uh, basically Moses says, uh, I'm a sojourner. I'm a sojourner in a land uh, where I do not belong. But, but what land? He didn't really belong in Egypt. Uh, none of the people of Israel belonged there. Uh, I suppose he would say, I, I don't really belong here in Midian. Uh, this is who I am. If Moses could sing, Moses would sing High Lonesome. And so we ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Is there a God, and is there a God who really, truly cares? That's why we need to go to scene four. We've seen in scene one that Moses is born. Scene two, Moses is a murderer. In scene three, Moses is a fugitive. But, but now what are we going to learn in verses 23 through 25? I'm titling this, Moses the Revealer. Moses and his actions are not described in these three verses at all. Rather, we see the actions of God. Notice what's happening with the people of Israel, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned. They didn't only groan, it goes on to say, because of their slavery, they also cried out for help. So here's the entire nation, absent Moses, and they are crying out, and they are basically singing high lonesome and saying, God, do you really care about us? Are you really involved in our lives? No doubt you've asked the same kind of question. But notice what the text says about God. At the end of verse 23, it says, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Look at the language that's used there. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. When you read those verses from the vantage point of an American, you might say, well, well God did something cognitively. Uh, he heard something, yeah, he, he understood what he heard. Uh, God remembered something, uh, God saw something, God knew something. But, but it's much more than that. It's not only that, that God went through some sort of a mental process. It's the idea of God did something mentally with the intention of doing something in terms of personal action. All of those things 
when it says God remembered his covenant. It wasn't as though God had forgotten and now he remembered again. No, it was almost as if God is saying, I remembered what I said to you and I will carry out the promises that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God knew. So that's the passage. And we started looking at this story by taking a question and propping it up against the text of Scripture. Does God care? Is God really involved in our lives? Here's a principle that I hope you and I will take with us into the rest of our lives. If you remember anything about what I've said in this text, you'll want to remember this. And that is that God deeply cares about you in the midst of your deep pain. God deeply identifies you in the depths of your deepest pain. Now, what I would like to do in the few moments that remain, I'd like to do a couple of things. One of the things I'd like to do is I'd like for us to say, why should we believe that? Why should we believe that God cares for us deeply in the midst of our deepest pain? Why is that true? On the other side of that, I'd like to say, okay, if that's true, then how do we take this truth? How do we live with it starting this afternoon and starting on Monday morning? Let's consider the first question. Why should you believe that God deeply cares about you in the midst of your deepest pain? And I would respond by saying preponderance of evidence. If we were to go into a court of law, one of the things that would happen is that the lawyers would bring a a different evidence and perhaps the prosecuting attorney, he would bring all of this evidence. It would be laid before the jury and it was so overwhelming that we'd begin to say, oh, I I guess we need to do what the evidence is indicating. We we need to convict in some sort of a way. That's what we're doing with what God has done. And the preponderance of evidence is that God cares for you. How do we know that? Consider Isaiah 41 and verse 10. The prophet says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. God said to the people of Israel, not once, but many times, I so care about you. I am involved in your life. I will help you. I will hold on to you. What about a passage like uh, Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2? Listen to what the psalmist says in this beautiful psalm about God's care for us. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Can you imagine that? That God knows everything about you. He knows everything that you're going to do this afternoon. He knows when you might walk into the living room, sit down in your favorite chair. You'll pick up a magazine from the coffee table and you'll begin. He knows exactly what magazine you will pick up in terms of a number that might be lying there. God knows what you'll be thinking about this afternoon. God knows all of your concerns. He knows everything about you this week. God knows about the results from that x-ray that you took last Thursday. God knows everything, and God cares. He's involved in your life. Or consider what the Lord Jesus said 
In Matthew uh, chapter 6, uh, Jesus is uh, telling his disciples that they, they don't need to worry. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 26, he makes reference to the birds and how God cares for them. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them every single day. And Jesus goes on to say, if the Father cares that much about birds, how much more does he care about you? The preponderance of evidence is that God cares. God is involved in our lives. But here is, is perhaps the, the supremacy of God's care for us. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church, is telling them about the beauty of our salvation and what Jesus has done for his people. Romans chapter eight and verse five. Uh, Romans chapter five, rather, in verse eight says, "God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, before we were even born, God sent our Savior, His Son, into the world to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That shows how deeply God." cares about you. In the very next chapter, Romans chapter 6, there's a beautiful thing in which uh, uh, Paul is trying to say, uh, not only have we been saved, not only have we been rescued from our sin and the penalty of our sin, he says that we are identified with Christ's death. And then he goes on to say in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, we are identified with his resurrection so that we might live in newness of life. I love that because it means that we don't have to be bound to our sin, but rather God has given us the resources in Jesus and his Holy Spirit so that we might walk in a life that we never imagined before, a life that is good for us and brings glory to God. What I'm trying to say, and Scripture goes on to say so many more things, is that God deeply cares about you in the midst of your deepest pain. Now, if that's true, it leads to the other thing that I want us to think about, and, and that is, uh, how then do we respond to this? If God deeply cares about you, what can you do starting right now, starting today? Lots of things, but let me give you a couple of suggestions. One of the things that, that we need to do is you and I need to embrace a new authority. Here's what I mean about that. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggles, if you're like me, and I think you are, one of the things that you will be inclined, you will be tempted to do, is to take control of things. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to do something. Moses did that, and it almost always got him into trouble. You see, we begin to think, oh, we are the masters of our own fate. Not true. Exodus chapter 2 is reminding us that God is in charge. God is working. And the way of wisdom is to surrender to God's authority in our lives. More specifically, from the vantage point of the Christian faith, we need to come under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and to surrender to him as if to say, whatever you want to do in my life, God, I'm trusting you. So we need to embrace a new authority. The other thing I would suggest that we need to do is we need to embrace a new plan. I wouldn't be surprised that you might have some plans for this week 
even in the midst of a quarantine, you probably have things that you want to do, people you need to call, tasks that you need to get done. And so in the process of that, you begin to assume that you are in charge of those things. But I'd like to suggest to you that whatever plans that you have, you bring those plans to the Lord Jesus and say, you take charge. I am sensing that I'm called by you to do these things, but I'm trusting you. Let my plans become part of your plans because you see God has a great plan. It's a plan of calling out people from all different walks of life to come and to realize that they need a Savior, and Jesus is that only Savior. Embrace his plan. Embrace his authority. One other thing I would suggest is that you and I need to also embrace some new communication. Here's what happens uh, whenever we are going through deep pain, and that is uh, we begin to tell ourselves that we're worthless, or we begin to tell ourselves that no one cares, and We begin to get into a downward spiral that we begin to say these negative things to ourselves over and over and over again. And scripture tells us that we are to take every thought captive and surrender it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges says in one of his books that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. That's what I'm telling myself. That's what I'm suggesting to you as well that you begin to proclaim the gospel, that you begin to tell yourself that God cares about you, God loves you, God is working in your life. Tell yourself that because it's true. It's true. And God has given us preponderance of evidence that we can trust him in the deepest depths of our pain. Bill Monroe wrote bluegrass music. Some of it he called High Lonesome in which he tried to express the pain of people everywhere. And the psalmist would tell us that we are to sing a new song, a different song. And that's what Exodus 2 would tell us as well. Sing a new song in which we give praises to God who is always at work and who always cares about us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for joining us in our life. Thank you for joining us even in our pain. Transform us. Transform us into the people of God so that whatever we are doing this week, that we will do it with joy and we will do it for your glory. We give ourselves to you now in Jesus' name.